Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 44. When Jesus had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the stones would cry out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection. Gracious God, we come to this moment right here. In need of something. Maybe we're in need of something we don't even know. Each of us comes with our own desires and hopes and dreams, with our own fears and pain and regrets. Each of us comes from our own perspective and experience. And at the same time, we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is more broken than we even know. More of a mess than we want the person next to us to know. 
And at the same time, you see us and you know us in all our complexity and contradictions, in the ways we get it and the ways we don't get it. And your response is not to run away or say, yuck. Your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see that you know us this much and that you love us to the highest heights. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. And bring the very peace that we just read about, the peace that only you can bring, not only to our lives, but to this world. And so would you send us out to be agents of your kingdom, to be your hands and feet that bring renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's interesting. We, they call this you know, Palm Sunday, as you probably know. You saw the palm branches coming in as you entered. And uh, it's interesting because Mark and Matthew tell us that there were these leafy branches that were being waved. Uh, Luke doesn't mention palms or branches at all, and John's the one who tells us that there are palms. So this could possibly, all of them do tell us that people put cloaks on the ground. So maybe it could be Cloak Sunday, or all of us, uh, all of the different perspectives on this from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John quote some part of Psalm 118. So maybe it could be Psalm Sunday. I read that in the commentary. I thought I'd try it. Um, But what they all agree on was that this is the way that people in that time would welcome a king into their city. And part of the point, regardless of which gospel you get it from, the point is that Jesus comes to them and forces their hand and says, either crown me as king or kill me as an imposter. But the one thing that doesn't make any sense is for you to just kind of nod at me and say, yeah, okay, I think you're, I, I think you're great, I think you're groovy, I think you're fine, but I'm not going to do anything with you. Right? The middle ground is the one place Jesus does not leave open for us. He says, crown me or kill me. In other words, he says, you're never going to understand Jesus unless you understand him as a king. Yes, he does come to you as a healer. He comes to you as friend. He comes to you as brother. He comes to you as teacher. He comes to you as savior. But he's none of those things to you unless you see him as a king. And that's the invitation today, to see him as a king, but unlike any other king we've ever seen in our lives. He's the true king. He's a weeping king. And he's a king who brings peace. First, he's the true king. Now, the interesting thing about looking at Jesus as a king is that we revolt against the idea of any sort of sovereignty or king. Nobody tells me how to live. Nobody tells you how to live. We do it our way however we want. I mean, that's what this country was founded on. In Philadelphia, right by the Liberty Bell and the museum right there, there's all sorts of um, historical memorabilia from the Revolutionary War. And one of them was a sign or a slogan that was being produced at that time that simply said, we have no sovereign. We have no sovereign. We have no king. You can't tell me how to live. And at the same time, it's fascinating. Why do you think fantasy fiction outpaces realistic fiction in the United States 20 to 1, 50 to 1? On one hand, we don't want the king, we don't want the sovereign. On the other hand, we gobble up stories about kings and queens ruling their kingdom. 
Why are we so obsessed with stories of the royals? Oprah interviews, you know, Prince Harry, and all of a sudden everything stops. And we tune in to see what the royals are going to say, to see what it's really like in the great castle. I remember visiting Derek and Jeanette in Malawi years ago. And we had gone from Malawi into neighboring Zambia for a uh, safari. And the border crossing right there is simply a dirt road with a log across it that just goes up on a hinge. That's the border. And you wait at the log for someone to come out and attend to your car. We waited for five minutes. We waited for ten minutes. We waited for longer. And finally, we went inside the little shack that was right there next to this makeshift border crossing. And it was the entirety of the staff huddled together around a small TV because it was the day of the great royal wedding for Prince William and Kate. And then we went from protesting at the long wait to we were huddled around the TV with them as well. We stop and we're fascinated by stories of royalty. Where do you think that comes from? I wonder, as you read through Scripture, Scripture opens with a beautiful story of royalty. It's a picture of a good and glorious God who's created a kingdom, and the people stood in God's presence with fellowship, with connection. A God who would rule and reign, a king who would use the power not to push down, but to lift up. And it says in Genesis 3 that we lost all that. When we rebelled, when we took matters into our own hands, when we said, we have no sovereign, we know better, things began to unravel. Physically, mentally, emotionally, communally, spiritually, decay. And God, in this little cryptic part of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, says, I will make it right. I will step back in and I will heal all that's gone wrong. All the broken heartedness and all the broken systems and all the broken families and all the broken bones and all the broken bodies, I will heal it all. Now let me just ask you, if that story is true, if at the core of the universe is a good God who uses God's sovereignty and power to heal and to lift up, wouldn't it make sense that whether you're a religious person or not, whether you've read the Bible or not, whether you're a Christian or not, there's some sort of longing imprinted on our heart. It's muscle memory deep within our DNA. We long for a sovereign that would make things right. We long for rescue. Now the thing about that is, we put all sorts of other things in the center of our lives to make us right. C.S. Lewis wrote years and years ago, he said, we turn regular people or ideas into kings and queens. He wrote, where we are forbidden to honor a king, we will honor millionaires, now it would be billionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Serve it food or it will gobble down poison. Maybe you've seen this before, when someone is so hungry to the point of starvation, they will eat things that aren't even good for them in the moment because they just want something in their stomach. And C.S. Lewis says, you long for something to save you. You long for something, maybe you wouldn't use those words. You long for something to tell you you're going to be secure. You long for something that tells you you mean something. Your life means something. You belong. You're beautiful. 
your desire. But we crown all sorts of different things to fill that longing. You crown your career. And you say, if I just get that promotion or that title or that office... And if I do, then I'll be successful and I'll be okay. We crown relationships. We take even good relationships and we make them ultimate relationships. And we put a stress on the other person that they were never meant to bear. And that's the beginning of codependency. We crown our children and say, if they could just grow up with the vision that I have for you. If you could just grow into the person that I want you to be. And we bind our success to theirs, our failures to theirs, our shame to theirs. You can choose anything and crown it, a political cause, even the most worthy one. But you crown it and you make it that thing that will rescue you. And it won't serve you. It'll make you serve it. It will eat you alive. And so Palm Sunday comes and asks, what have you crowned in your life? What's driving you? What's the thing that you think about when you're not thinking about anything else? He's a true king. He's also a weeping king. You know, that whole last part where he came near the city, he weeps over it saying, if you, even you, had recognized on this day the things that make for peace. And then he goes on with this big prediction of doom for the city, which actually came true in A.D. 70 when Titus came and sieged Jerusalem and toppled over the temple. And he says, you, Jerusalem. Jerusalem actually means the city of peace. Jeru Shalom. Shalom is peace. You, the city of peace, you desire it so badly, you have no idea how to achieve it. And you are eroding yourselves from within. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, it was peace at the tip of a spear. It was peace that said, I'll give you peace or I'll give you death. So everyone get along and pretend like we're all okay or you're dying. And today, 2,000 years later, we have a doctrine of peace around the world where the largest nuclear superpowers have the ability to destroy each other. It's called the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. Our way of peace is simply saying, if I fire my intercontinental ballistic missile, you're going to fire one too, and so that's why we're going to have peace. Jesus comes and says, you have no idea the things that make for peace. We talked about last week how in our community right now we're seeing scapegoating going on and the way that that works to bring peace, the myth of scapegoating is if I don't really have much in common with you, if I don't get along much with you, you and I can agree on some third party over there to become the lightning rod for our, our anxiety and our fear. And as long, they don't have to be guilty to do it. They don't have to have done anything to, for it to work. As long as we can agree that those people are the problem, then we can join forces and it brings a false peace to us. The myth of scapegoating. Or we saw in the last hundred years the myth of isolation. That we can actually just go off and build bigger walls, bigger fences, and keep the peace by staying away from the danger out there whether it's the doctrine of American exceptionalism or whether it's what happens with the flight to the suburbs, right? We, we went the other day to pick up an umbrella, a patio umbrella, at one of these beautiful suburban estates. It is so far out there, and then you climb a hill, and then you get to a gated community. It's like, why do you need a gated community? No one can get here. 
but it's the myth of isolation. I need to get away from the problems. I need to get away from the danger. And we live our lives that way. I wonder if this is why Martin Luther King Jr. said, the only thing that's necessary for the triumph of evil in this world is for good people to do nothing. On Tuesday night at our Solidarity Night for our Asian American Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, there was a woman from Somalia who shared a story of the four cows. And she starts off by saying, first of all, has anybody ever seen a purple cow, right? No one raises their hand. And she goes, well, I'm going to tell you a story about a purple cow. There were four cows. There was a black one, a white one, a brown one, and a purple one. And the cows got together, and they said, you know, that purple cow is different than all of us, and it stands out a lot, and it's going to make us really susceptible to a predator coming in, taking us out. So let's kick the purple cow out of the group. And they did. And the wolf came, and it ate the purple cow. But then the wolf came, and it ate the brown cow. Then the wolf came, and it ate the white cow. Then the wolf came, and it ate the black cow. And as it was eating that final cow, the cow said, and first of all, cows can't talk, I know. The cow said, I died the day the purple cow died. The day that I pushed that one out. The day that I began to get isolated from others. But it's the myth of peace. If we can just, if I'm doing well and you're not, I'm going to take a step away. Because you might need my resources, you might need my time, you might be inconvenient to me, or if other people see me associating with you. And that's the myth of isolation. And I want you to see that Jesus says that will never work. It just means that you'll die alone. The only thing necessary for the flourishing of evil is for good people to do nothing. Jesus invites us to another way. A way that practices the peace that comes through love. A whole new way. He's a king who brings peace. How does he bring it? He brings it humbly. See, what Jesus is doing is actually a parody of something that all of the people would have already recognized. I told you before, this is a picture of how people would welcome a king into a city. And actually, the Romans had perfected this. It was called the Triumphus. And when a king had conquered new lands, they would have a great parade of chariots and horses, and they would bring in all of the captives that would soon become slaves. They would parade in all of the wealth and all of the treasure and all the people. And they'd come in on a war horse. And they'd say, I did this with my muscle. I did this with my might. And so you get what's going on here. When Jesus says to his followers, go into the town and you're going to see a little donkey in there. It's never been ridden. I want you to untie that and bring it to me. What do you think it was like for the disciples at that moment? Who have seen him healing and teaching and preaching and raising people from the dead and have said things like, I will set this whole people free. They're thinking Moses. They're thinking King David. They're thinking military conquest. And then he goes, go get me a little donkey. <laughs> Can you imagine them just thinking, Jesus, you have a PR problem. You are totally missing the picture of what we're trying to get you to do here. We need you to come in to Jerusalem and knock some heads together and crack some skulls and show them we mean business if you're going to free us. I wonder if Jesus was thinking, I could do that. I could snap my fingers and have a legion of angels here at my disposal and my direction. 
yeah, I can set you free from Rome, and we can crush them, and we can do it with violence, but you know what that will do? That will set a few people free for a few years. But how long before the cycle of violence just continues? I've come actually to crush a more sinister enemy. The enemy of sin and death. The enemy not that stalks you out there, but the enemy that will erode you from within. I've come to deal death, a death blow, once and for all. And so I don't come with violence. In fact, I recycle violence. Jesus on the cross, as the Roman uh, guards are jeering and sneering at him, at the religious elites are saying he was a fake and a phony. He's not saying, God, I'm going to get these guys. God, give them what they deserve. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He recycles sin and pain and violence and injustice into something new and beautiful. That's what we're going to walk through in real time this week. That's the big story he invites us into. He says, I come in humility. I come in weakness. I come in service. I come in sacrifice. I come to give my life. Now, also, just as an aside... And this, this part gets, I miss, I've read this no fewer than a hundred times. And it's, I always miss this part. He says, go and, not only go and get a little donkey, a little colt, small horse, something like that, but it's never been ridden before. If you've ever gone to a ranch or a farm, and they say, that's the horse over there that's never been ridden before. No one can ride that horse. That's a wild horse. What do you have to do? You have to spend days and weeks and months breaking that horse, training that horse, teaching that horse, so that at some point you can put a saddle on it and hold on. Jesus walks in and says, give me the little donkey that's never been ridden. And instead of snapping at him or biting or running from him, it's at peace. Compounded with the fact he's about to ride this little animal that's never been ridden before into a crowd of cheering, jeering supporters screaming his name. But instead of utter chaos and the small animal coming out of its skin with anxiety, there's nothing but peace and calm. What do you think's going on there? I wonder if that animal recognized the voice of the true king. The same one by whose voice animals were created in the beginning of the world is now commanding this small animal. And when he gets on the back of that animal, he doesn't crush it. He doesn't break it. He doesn't ride it into the ground. He actually brings his peace to that animal's life. I wonder if that's a picture of what it looks like to follow him. He comes humbly. He also comes powerfully. There's a humble power. All the people here would have known that several centuries earlier, Alexander the Great, when he conquered, came into Jerusalem. And he had that great triumphous procession. And he had the procession end at the temple. And he said to the high priest, you will let me into the temple, and I will, and I will offer sacrifice. Because that's what good Roman kings did. They offered sacrifices to the gods. He said, you have a god, great, I'll offer a sacrifice. And the high priest and the religious elites went down in infamy that day for collaborating with the emperor, empire. They sold themselves out. They sold their people out. They sold their relationship with God out. 
Alexander the Great went to the temple to offer sacrifices. Jesus, triumphus, that we read today, also ends at the temple. But it doesn't end there so he can offer sacrifices. What does he do? He cleanses the temple. He kicks out the money changers. He kicks out the people that are colluding with the empire for their own economic interests by using the poor, and he cleanses the whole thing. He gets rid of, what does he get rid of? All the animals. What were the animals for? The sacrifice. In other words, he gets rid of all the sacrifices at the temple, and what does he put in the middle of the temple? Himself. He stands there. He knows that the cost of cleansing that temple will be his own sacrifice on the cross. He comes humbly, and he comes powerfully. He's the true high priest that is undoing everything the other high priests and others had been doing. Polluting the faith, using people, pushing others down in the name of connection with God. And he says, I will not stand for it. But I come not only to connect you with God. I come as God himself. This is envisioned in Zechariah chapter 9 as they say, Rejoice, Jerusalem. The king comes triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. But it goes on to say, He will cut off the chariot and the war horse from Jerusalem. The chariot and the war horse, those were the M1 Abrams tanks. Those were the great battleships. That was heavy artillery. He also says, the battle bow shall be cut off. That's the light arms, the light armaments. That's the M16s and the AR15s and the AK47s. He says, all the weapons of war will be done away with. And what will he bring instead? He'll command peace to the nations. Elsewhere, the prophets envision this, that swords will be beaten into plowshares. A plowshare is something you use to harvest grain. The weapons of war will become the instruments of preparing great meals together. If only you knew the things that make for peace. He comes humbly. He comes powerfully. And then he comes inviting you and me, sending you and me into that great vision of being peacemakers. Sacrificial, self-giving love that comes to us and goes through us to others. There's a place in Psalm 68 Whereas there's this envisioning of what God would be like in the great triumphus, the great procession of God's glory. And it just patterns itself after what they knew in society at the time. God, you will come leading captives in your train and receiving gifts. Because that's one of the things that the Roman emperors would do in their triumphus is they'd receive gifts from the people. They'd come out with flowers. They'd come out with a cake. They'd come out with a steak. They'd come out with something. And part of it was to honor them and to associate with them. But part of it also was, here's a gift. Please don't come after my family. (laughs) We're good. We're good, right? We're good. That was the vision. You would lead captives in your train. You would receive gifts from the people. But after Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, after Jesus on this Palm Sunday showing what God's glory looks like, they reverse it. And when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, he says, God made captivity itself a captive and gave good gifts to his people. See, earlier they envisioned, I, we know how kings work. They take gifts from you. They take your goods. They take your resources. And Paul says, now that we have met Jesus, we know that this is a good king 
who doesn't take gifts from his people. He gives gifts to his people. What's the gift that God wants to give you today? I mean, maybe it's opening your eyes to see how much he loves you. Maybe it's a new introspection to see the things that make for peace in your life have not been working for you. Maybe it's a moment of honesty and clarity where you say, I've been crowning all sorts of different things in my life and they all make terrible kings and queens. I need to find myself in him. Another interesting thing is he not only gives good gifts to his people. Oftentimes in the New Testament, gifts of God are talked about as resources or talents or abilities. What sort of gifts do you have that you can use? But in this passage, he actually talks about the people of God themselves given as a gift to the watching and waiting world. What's the great gift that God wants to give to this world? In the midst of all our political polarization, in the midst of all our racial hatred and violence, in the midst of how scattered we could be, not only as a society, but even in our own selves, what's the gift God wants to give to that world? He wants to give you. You specifically with your own strengths and weaknesses, with your own confidence and fear, with the sense of energy and vigor that you have, or with the way that you are exhausted. He calls you and me to be his very hands and feet of peace wherever we go, and he gives us as gifts to the people. So friends, I invite you, trust him as the true king. Crown him and see that when you find him in the center of your life, you don't lose yourself. You actually find out who you were created to become. See him weep over our broken ways of destroying ourselves and offering an alternative vision of what it looks like to live at peace. And follow him. Imitate him. Receive the gifts that he offers you today and then go out and share those gifts with the watching world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would open our eyes to your grace, our minds to your truth, our hearts to your love. You would send us out as your very hands and feet wherever we go. Help us to see that when we recognize you as the true king, we actually begin to find ourselves in a much bigger story the story we were created for. Because you're a king king who does not crush or condemn, but who serves. Who does not sap us of our life force, but who gives good gifts to your people and then gives your people as a gift to this world. And so as that first crowd said on that first Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, would you save us? Would you rescue us? Would you give us the courage to follow you wherever you lead? In your name, amen. Friends, we continue now with our time of offering, which on one hand is an act of worship as we give generously and joyfully and sacrificially, saying, God, all that I have is a gift from you, so I give freely back to God from what God has given me. It's never done under manipulation or compulsion, but always with joy. 
Uh, if you want to join in online, giving and participating in the offering, you could do that at the church's website, renewsandiego.org. Just click on the contact button, or on the uh, give button, appropriately, and everything is uh, encrypted and secure in that way. As we do, let's commit our offering to God using the prayer, if you're uh, following along right after the sermon, as we pray. Almighty One, you've done great things for us, and holy is your name. Bless all we offer you, ourselves, our time, and our possessions, that through us your grace and favor may be known to all the world. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.